This morning's reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the heavens, and when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the the bow on the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Father, as was just sung, we pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts as we look at your scripture uh, would be pleasing to you. We lift all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the history of Christianity, uh, if you really look at it, tells about uh, one of the greatest movements uh, in all of human history. Uh, historians have told us that by around 380, Uh, 56.8% of the world's population considered itself to be Christian. So over half of the world's population uh, considered themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. Even uh, researchers and sociologists today tell us that even though it doesn't always feel like it, a third of the world's population considers themselves to be Christian. All of them seek, at the very least, Uh, to emulate and live as Christ did, to follow him with their lives. And yet what's interesting is that uh, toward the end of Jesus' life, ironically, he was anything but popular. During the final uh, days, during the final weeks of Jesus' earthly life, he had maybe maybe roughly uh, 12 to 20 followers, and even those guys around him weren't very good at following him. Everyone else treated him with apathy or outright contempt or opposition. The crowd that shouted crucify him on Friday far outweighed and outnumbered the crowd that celebrated his arrival on Palm Sunday. The opposition 
far, far outweighed his popularity. And so we often think of Jesus as a great example of love and sacrifice, and of course he is. But in the first century world, he was a lightning rod of controversy and contempt and of opposition. So what I'd like to do over the next four weeks before we get to the Advent season that we celebrate, I want to take a look at what I'm calling the Jesus Opposition. We're going to look at at four different episodes in the life and ministry of Jesus that generated a substantial amount of enemies and anger towards Jesus. And, And the purpose of this is to help us to see just how powerful, yes, but also how provocative his message was then and how powerful and provocative it is even today in our world. I think I also want us to ask an even deeper question, and that is, what would we have done if we were there? Would we have been one of the ones that were shouting, crucify him? Or would we have been one of the ones that would have celebrated him when he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey? Or would we have been one of the countless thousands of people that just didn't care at all, that just treated him simply with apathy? When we hear the true message of the gospel, what does it do in us? And what does it do in our hearts? This passage opens up by telling us that Jesus came to Nazareth, which was the very town in which he was raised. This is uh, just after the Gospels tell us he he faced a very different sort of opposition. He had just spent uh, 40 days in the desert tangling with with Satan in an incredible spiritual uh, struggle, an incredible spiritual opposition. It's probably also after Jesus had performed his, his very first few miracles. So at this point, the, the word is beginning to spread around town about Jesus, about some of the things that he had done. The, the stories are starting to be told from town to town about Jesus and his activity. But this passage tells us about a time when Jesus, after all these things, returned back to his home. Now, Jesus was a good Jewish boy, and he lived within a good Jewish community. So on the Sabbath, Jesus did what he was supposed to do. He did what all good Jews did. He woke up early in the morning, and he went to synagogue. When you would go to synagogue uh, in the ancient world, they would have their rituals, just like we have certain rituals that we do in church on Sunday, they would have rituals that they would practice on the Sabbath. They would recite uh, the Shema as a community of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this would be followed by prayers of the people where people would pray for one another and pray for their community and pray for their town and uplift one another in that. And that would be followed by readings of the law and readings of the prophet. And after these readings, there would be a a certain exposition. Someone would stand up and and teach uh, things about or, or teach meditations on the prophets and the law that they had just read. Now, to be asked to do one of these readings and then to give exposition on that reading was considered to be one of the highest honors in the Jewish religious community of that day. So Jesus, upon returning to his hometown and attending the synagogue, is asked to do this highest of all honors, to read the scriptures and to give a teaching on it. 
So Jesus unrolls the the scroll of the sacred scriptures. He reads an incredibly powerful passage from the prophet Isaiah, and then he sits down. And the passage says this, And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you fast forward just a few verses to the end of the narrative, you find a very different scene. At the very end of the narrative, everyone who was sitting in that synagogue, everyone who was in the town, for that matter, were enraged. They were furious at Jesus, so much so that they had grabbed him and led him outside of town. They were going to throw him off the cliff. There was no due process. There was no uh, court case. They were so enraged that they took justice in their own hands and they tried to kill him on the spot. So what was it that made them so angry? What was it that so enraged them that they were going to kill Jesus on the spot? Well, I think if we look at the passage, we really see two kinds of opposition that Jesus ran into in this story. And the first was what I call a hometown opposition. The passage tells us in verse 22 that all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? You see, the setting of this story is really important. This synagogue event happens in Nazareth, which was the very town that Jesus was raised in. Nazareth did not have a good reputation uh, in the ancient world. It was thought of very poorly socially and culturally. It was considered to be full of low-class people who did not amount to anything or were not worthwhile. And if you were from Nazareth, you were scorned upon culturally in the ancient world. But nevertheless, that was Jesus's town. That was the place where he was from. He had spent probably 30 years of his life being raised in this town, and now he returns home and he declares that he is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. And that was incredibly difficult for everyone there to accept. It was difficult to accept because everyone in the synagogue that day had watched Jesus grow up from the time that he was a child. Jesus' school teachers were there. The kids he played with and the friends that he grew up with were there that day. The nursery worker that held him when he was crying in the nursery at synagogue was in the audience that day. Jesus studied carpentry under his father, so doubtless there were some people in the audience that day that, said, that were thinking, don't we have a table in our dining room that was made by this man and his father as a carpenter? Doctors, teachers, synagogue rulers, friends, extended family, all of them were there, and now Jesus was saying something incredibly outrageous. He is saying that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Just imagine a kid in our church who grows up 30 years later and then comes back to our church and starts saying the things that Jesus said. We'd be 
signing him or her up as quickly as we can for therapy to try to figure out what's going on in their head. We might be driving them to a mental institution to have them checked upon. This was incredulous for those people that were hearing it. But there was something even deeper behind the comment, is not this Joseph's son? Because you see, for all of Jesus' life, rumors would have followed him around everywhere he went. Because the circumstances of his birth, at best, were very suspect. Remember that Mary had turned up pregnant just before her marriage to Joseph had been finalized. And two options for that pregnancy are possible. Either Mary had slept with someone who wasn't Joseph, her betrothed, or Mary and Joseph had slept together before their marriage was finalized. Very few people would have ever believed the story that Mary and Joseph had told them if they even had made any effort whatsoever to explain it. So for the rest of their lives, this little family would have to deal with the whispers and the innuendos. They would have to deal with others speculating behind their backs every time they left the room. And now this child, this Jesus, who had now grown up for the past 30 years in their midst, this child from suspect lineage was now claiming to be the fulfillment of the scriptures. This was incredibly hard for them to accept. But there wasn't just a a hometown opposition to what Jesus was saying here, but there was also a religious opposition. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You see, for the Jewish people, the synagogue was the most holy of places. At one point in their history, they had had the sacred temple, but that was destroyed and their nation had been scattered. And as they were scattered, they would set up synagogues or places of the teaching of the law in all the different cities that they went to. And the synagogue was the place where they had gathered together as a community of faith. It was a far cry from that ancient temple, but it was the best they had had and the most holy place that they had in their religion. The people not only had their sacred place of worship, but they also had the heroes of the faith, and the heroes of their faith were the prophets. These prophets were the spokesmen of God. They would receive a message from God and then be responsible to communicate that message to God's people. Abraham, Moses, Nathan, they were all prophets, heroes of the faith. They were the exemplars of the faith who one day, each one of them said, who one day would lead to an ultimate prophet. The ultimate prophet who would come. Jesus mentions three different prophets in this passage. Uh, He mentions Isaiah, he mentions Elijah, and Elisha. And all of these respected prophets all said that an ultimate prophet would come at one day and would finally establish the kingdom of God. Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. He speaks about Elijah and Elisha, and then he says something outrageous. He says that he is the one that they spoke about. 
He is the one that they talked about. He's the one that they told stories about. He's the one that they gave prophecies about. He is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the one who would come to establish God's kingdom. The year of Jubilee, the year of freedom had come. Let the celebration begin because today is the day of God's gracious work. Jesus says in this most holy of place that he's not just superior to these heroes and the, these exemplars, but he is the fulfillment of everything that they always spoke about. And at the end of the day, that was too much for them. Everyone that heard the words out of Jesus' mouth were overcome, so much so that they grabbed him and they led him to his death but he slipped through them and escaped death that day because it wasn't his time yet. But one day it would be. One day his enemies would be successful. Indeed, they would lead him to his death on the cross. So Jesus faced hometown opposition. He faced religious opposition in this story But the question I think the gospel writers ultimately want us to ask is, what about us? What about the opposition to Jesus that exists in our own hearts? What about our own opposition to his message? When I was uh, in graduate school for uh, religious studies, uh, I had a New Testament professor, and we sat down the first day of class for for this uh, course, And he said, I'm going to challenge everything that you've ever believed about the New Testament. I'm going to make you think very differently about everything that you thought you knew about the New Testament. And all the students who were proud of their religiosity and proud of their intellect said, not me. And of course, I was one of them. You're not going to challenge what I think about the New Testament and everything I understand. Well, at the end of the day, three and a half months later, we all realized that he was right. Because what he did is he helped us think like a first century person. He helped us think like a good Jew that was sitting in the synagogue that day, like someone that heard the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. He helped us to realize that we would have joined in with the crowd that led him to that cliff. We would have been the ones that chanted crucify him in his last week. In fact, those that shouted the loudest on those days, were the ones that were most religious. Friends, we sometimes don't realize the significance of Jesus' claims, not just here, but in the gospel. Because what Jesus says here that day is that he was the climax of all the history of the prophets. And if that's true, then, then Jesus is the climax of all of religious history. And if that's true, then Jesus is the climax of all of human history. Imagine someone coming to you today and saying, I am the climax of all of human history. What would you be thinking? The implications are enormous. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then therefore Jesus demands and needs to be the climax of your story as well. What Jesus is telling us is that you and I are not 
the main characters of our story. He is. We are not the hero to emulate. He is. Our needs and our wants and our desires are not ultimate. His are. You exist not to build your own kingdom. Instead, you exist to spread his. Eugene Peterson said this. He said, none of us is the leading character in the story of our lives. God is the larger context in which all of our stories exist. Some people have said that we live in a narcissistic age. And what that means is that our age is one of self-obsession. That life is taught us from a very young age that it is all about us and our happiness and our personal success and no one should get in our way in accomplishing those things. And each one of us know that that message is attractive because each one of us wakes up inherently selfish, fixated on our own agenda and our own needs and our own wants. We want and desire to be the masters of our own lives. Just for a moment, take an inventory of the thought life that exists in your head each day. I had to do that this week preparing the sermon. It wasn't a fun thing to take inventory of. Because at the end of the day, I had to come to terms with how much of my thoughts dwelt on me. How much of your thoughts dwell on you? How fixated are you on what others think about you or on how much you think about yourself? How much are you captured by yourself and your own personal concerns? Because then you encounter Jesus. Because then you meet the gospel message and you meet Jesus and the words that he said and he tells you that the only way to truly get life is to give yours away. His message was not that we ought to live our lives glorifying ourselves and uplifting ourselves. Instead, our lives, our existence at the end of the day are all about glorifying Him and enjoying Him. You see, when we really understand what Jesus says and what He demands, you better believe that there's going to be opposition. And often the opposition comes from our very own hearts because we enjoy being the center of our own universe. But friends, the gospel message, as disruptive and as oppositional as our hearts are to it, the gospel message tells us that it is the only path to life. Give your life away to find it, because Jesus is the climax of human history, and he needs to be the climax of your life as well. Friends, let's not anesthetize Jesus' teaching. Let's see it for what it really is, for how provocative it truly is. Let it offend our modern sensibilities and our modern notions of what life is really about. But let's also let the Spirit open our eyes to see that it is truly the only path to life. Let's pray.